From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Mo Rocca follows the world of the living as correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning, panelist for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and host of Innovation Nation. His other beat is The Departed. As host of the Mobituaries podcast, now in its second season, Mo tells stories of people and things that have passed through this earthly plane with too little notice and uncovers little-known facets of iconic figures who did get a lot of ink. This Mobit, the timeless Audrey Hepburn. Death of an icon. Death of a career. Death of the entertainer. Death of a tree, roots of a rivalry. This Mobit, sitcom deaths and disappearances. His new book, Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving, pulls together mobits of disappeared sitcom characters, forgotten forerunners, also-ran politicians, and extinct artifacts, from consumer swag to the codpiece, along with some beloved trees. Mo Rocca is going to be at the Carter Center on Thursday, November 21st, but we're speaking with him now from, where are you, Mo? I'm in New York. In New York City. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course, and New York is still alive. <laughs> no mobit yet for New York City. No way. Well, you began you began this book talking about how your father loved reading the obits page. Mine did too, by the way. But what was the appeal for him and for you? Uh, my father had a real sense of the romance of life, and I'm not being cute there. Um, he loved old movies, and he had a great sense of drama. And I think that when you read a good obituary, um, it is kind of like watching the trailer for the preview for an Oscar-winning biopic. It has that kind of sweep. And so it's very life-affirming. Um, I think also he, like I, sometimes read them sort of in a reflective way, kind mm -hmm. of, oh, I wonder if I would have made the choice that that person made. Um, but also, you know, I know sometimes I can be a competitive obit reader. You know, you read somebody like Marvin Hamlish's obit and think, oh, my God, he did all of that by the time he was 25. <laughs> um, and then, you know, and, and, and so you're charting your own progress with that person. Then you go, oh, my God. Oh, she went to prison when she was 42. OK, so I'm doing OK. <laughs> <laughs> but like your podcast, the book is not straight bios. What makes someone or something worthy of a mobituary? Well, um, primarily it has to be somebody that I'm interested in, that I feel some connection to, or something that I feel some connection to. I mean, as this project evolved, um, it, it, it did indeed turn out to be some people that were very famous, who, um, for different reasons, um, didn't get the send-off they deserved. Maybe their death was actually eclipsed, like Audrey Hepburn's was by the inauguration of Bill Clinton. Or in the case of Sammy Davis Jr. and Jim Henson, you have these two geniuses dying on the same day. I mean, they each deserve their own news cycle. But then there were people who made very real contributions um, and were never really acknowledged, like Moses Fleetwood Walker, who 63 years before Jackie Robinson was actually the first African-American to play what passed for Major League Baseball. Um, and then there were people that were once wildly famous and have been forgotten, like Chang and Ang, the conjoined twins who were – who. Um, gave birth to the to the moniker Siamese twins. I mean, they were some of America's first entertainers and, and were extremely famous and 
people, you know, maybe they remember them from, I think everybody had this Guinness book. It wasn't a world records, but it was another Guinness book that had sort of so-called oddities in them. I remember that as a kid. Yeah, me too. I remember seeing that picture of Chang and Aang. That picture. The quote-unquote Siamese twins. Right, exactly. Um, And then, of course, there were things. I wanted to memorialize the station wagon. So I think over time, I've sort of learned to trust my gut and hope that if I'm enthusiastic enough about something, it will catch on with Mm. with readers and listeners. Well, some people, we do know their names. They were iconographic. You mentioned Audrey Hepburn. And also for me, Elizabeth Taylor. Now, I had no idea that she had leveraged her fame way back in 1985 to fight AIDS. I think it was even, was it still being called GRID then? I have no idea. Well, it it was certainly very early early on and I had seen this Larry King interview with her and talk about sweeping. I mean, I had to lie down after this this <laughs> interview because her giving a tour of her own life and her passion for living was I mean, sort of took my breath away. And and the story of her advocacy on behalf of people suffering from AIDS, what was once known as GRID, gay related immunodeficiency, right? Um she um she did leverage her fame. This was at a point when she'd become sort of a punchline. She easily, she had a lot of money. She could have just stayed indoors or gone to Palm Springs and said, leave me alone. And she put herself out there. She got on the phone. She called other celebrities, some of whom I love and you know I'm a fan of, but who, who essentially hung up the phone on her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she put herself out there. And while someone like Larry Kramer, who was the very first person to actually convene a group of activists very early on, did important political work. Elizabeth Taylor did important work convincing corporate boards and the mainstream to get behind this fight against AIDS. So I love, I talked to Carol Bayer Sager, the great songwriter who was a close friend of Elizabeth Taylor's mm-hmm. and um, who I should mention, uh, she hated being called Liz. So I make make a point of always calling her Elizabeth. Right. And that she said, you know, Elizabeth Taylor just loved life. She said, I I would go to an L.A. Dodgers game with her and she would get a hot dog and she would dress it with everything, pile on the condiments. And when she took a bite, she took a bite. I mean, and I wish I could have met her because there was a reason people loved Elizabeth Taylor. My guest is Mo Rocca, correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning, host of the Mobituaries podcast, and now author of a book, Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving. He's going to be at the Carter Center on Thursday, November 21st. One of the most affecting stories was of Sammy Davis Jr. So many surprises here. But Sammy Davis Jr., he's somebody that we think we know. He's famous. And and I love that you made the choice not to go over his role in the Brat Pack, which, as you noted, has been done to death if I can use that term. But why? what did you want to know about his life? Well, I think that Sammy, the story of Sammy Davis Jr.'s passing is also a story of a kind of entertainer who, while he could be sly, um, certainly, aside from being brilliant, he wasn't overly ironic. He wasn't distancing. I think a lot of performers, I've done this myself in the past, sort of become very arch as a way of, of insulating yourself. So say if a joke doesn't land, you can say, oh, well, I was kind of – I was sort of making fun of the idea of telling a joke. I, I, I don't mean to get a little high concept here. But Sammy Davis Jr. is the kind of good old-fashioned entertainer like Judy Garland who – there was 
there was no wall between the performer and the audience, and there didn't need to be because he was just so talented. But he had also, over time, been made fun of, if affectionately, and also seen as something as of a little bit of a compromised and accommodationist figure. Mm-hmm. And I see someone there, you know, who was not only a brilliant entertainer but bold. I mean, he was the first black entertainer to imitate white actors on stage. He was a great impressionist among his many skills. And he did that. And he did it in the army as a way of survival because he was small in physical stature. He was really beaten up and fought back when he was um, in one of the first integrated units in the U.S. Army. We actually we, we actually have a clip of that. This is from the Mobituaries podcast, Sammy Davis Jr. on the Arsenio Hall show talking about what a shock it was for him to serve in the military. I was in a kind of an odd situation because I'm, I'm going, hey, I don't know anything about this outside world. I belong to show business. Show business says, hey, I got a barn. Let's put the show on here. You know, yeah. all of those cliches. I lived, you know, and the other guys are going, don't be doing that. You're going to get us in trouble. You know, I got my nose broke three times and it hurt and you couldn't do anything about it. You had nobody to back you up. So this is a this is a person who um, didn't shrink from conflict uh, and who kept soldiering on. And, you know, he 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 loved performing and he didn't shrink from what that meant as an African-American man in an integrated world. He also he was at the march in Washington. He marched in Selma. Harry Belafonte once said, I don't understand why he doesn't get credit. Um, he happened to be a genius entertainer during who lived during a tumultuous time. And he neither skirted, I think, his responsibilities as, as a symbol, but what he really wanted to do was perform. That's what he loved doing. And I think by doing that, he made a huge impact. He certainly brought enjoyment to many, many millions of people. Um, And it was his idea also to kiss Archie Bunker on the cheek in that great episode of All in the Family, Norman Lear's show. Um, Anyway, I I just, he and he's, in my opinion, he and Judy Garland are the two greatest entertainers of the 20th century. And interestingly, I can only find one place where they ever performed together and it's not that great. Where is it? They, they, I think you can find it on YouTube. I think they're singing We're a Couple of Swells. They're dressed in tramp outfits. and But somehow I, they may be too similar. There may be something – so there's, they're not cutting against each other in a way that I think makes for a, a great duet um, the, the, because I think there's maybe a great similarity about them. Um, in, and you know it's but what was it like hard. on some kind of TV variety show or something like that? I think it was yeah, it was a TV. I'm pretty sure it was a TV variety show. We have another clip here. This is from a tribute for Sammy Davis Jr. He had been diagnosed with cancer. He was dying and frail. This is where the great tap dancer Gregory Hines says he's going to dance out his love for Sammy. Then Hines brings out Sammy's tap shoes, and as you say in your podcast. Sammy can't resist, even though he was not scheduled to perform. Let's hear it. They did this beautiful little duet together, and it tore the place apart. Look, it's impossible to tell if this was all prearranged. But frankly, who cares? Sammy comes alive in that sequence. I swear, when you watch this, you forget that he's dying. 
that's the last step Sammy ever danced. It's just so great. I love Sammy, and I think one of the things I love also about him is if I told you that he did a cover of the Maud TV theme song. You mean, and then there's Maud, that one? <laughs> and the, yeah. Anything but compromise. And right on, Maud. Yeah. <laughs> Lady Godiva was a freedom rider. She didn't care if the whole world looked. Joan of Arc with the Lord to guide her. She was a sister who really cooked that whole thing. And you would think you'd roll your eyes, and I'd understand why, and think, oh, what's this going to be like? And then you listen to it. And it's good. So it takes a great performer to and a fearless performer to commit in the way that he did and push it over the top every time. The other thing I found about Sammy Davis Jr. as a performer is that, you know, he's a, at least a quadruple, maybe a quintuple threat. And in each of these things, he's better than anyone else. You mean he so could sing, he could dance, he could he could act, he could he could also do impressions, he could do comedy? It, yes. And now and and his impressions, if you see him, he does on a Julie Andrews variety show. He does what I'll call an impression off with Rich Little. <laughs> and Rich Little is technically better. The great I mean, he is a famous impressionist. He's still with us. But Sammy is better. He's just better somehow. And there's some light coming from within. When he's dancing at the Apollo with all these great hoofers, I think they include Honey Coles. I mean, maybe even one of the Nicholas brothers. It's from, it's from years and years ago. But somehow you can't take your eyes off of Sammy. And that's that kind of inner light that draws me. We're going to take a quick break and be back with Mo Rocca talking about his book, Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving. He's going to be at the Carter Center on Thursday, November 21st. And we're going to leave you with I Gotta Be Me by Sammy Davis Jr. But stay with us on Second Thought. We'll be right back. I'm Virginia Prescott. I gotta be me. I gotta be me. What else can I be? We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Whatever happened to the station wagon, to Billy Carter, and why did one of the founders of the United States only have a paltry group of mourners at his funeral? Well, the answers are in their Mobits, created by my guest Mo Rocca. He's correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning, panelist for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and host of the Mobituaries podcast. Well, now he's written a new book, which expands on the stories from the podcast. It's called Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving, and Mo will be talking about the book at the Carter Center on Thursday, November 21st. Mo, you write in the introduction that you're looking for the barely remembered. And, you know, people like Audrey Hepburn, Sammy Davis Jr., they're well remembered. But there's a larger theme here, I think, about who or what we choose to remember. Uh, Like last year, I remember the launch of the New York Times did this overlooked series uh, after realizing in, you know, 100 years of chronicling the heads of state and opera singers and inventors, and they're mostly white men. So what is the larger purpose for you in re-remembering these people, if I can put it that way? Um, I think it's – I. the sad fact is everyone will be forgotten. <laughs> I, I'm realizing that, um, especially when you work with younger people, um, smart, great <laughs> younger people like I have. You realize that basically everyone thinks, well, who was Johnny Carson? Wait, he's not Car- – I mean Carson Daly? No, I meant Johnny Carson. Um, but I want to oh, – I want – to hold on to figures who deserve to be remembered as long as possible. And I also want to treat them compassionately. I don't want to 
wag a finger at the past. I I was talking actually for CBS Sunday Morning with both David McCullough and Doris Kearns Goodwin. How about those names? Two great historians. But, but both of them agreed that we need to cut the past some slack and look at it more compassionately. Um, so I wanted um, to be generous and seek to understand these people and to shed light on people who definitely deserve it, like these forgotten forerunners. I mean, somebody like Elizabeth Jennings, who 101 years before Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott, uh, Elizabeth Jennings is an African-American woman in lower Manhattan who's kicked off of a horse-drawn streetcar. And she sues. She sues that railroad company. They were called railroad companies. And she wins in civil court. And it leads to the integration of New York City's Transportation Authority. Um, and she had an obituary. She did have an obituary. Um, so she wasn't and, – and in fact, her birthday was celebrated for several years after the court case. But no one remembers who she is. And there's something almost eerie about that fact that it's almost 100 years before Rosa Parks. Mm-hmm. Well, so besides looking at these big historical figures, there are also things that are very personal for you as a kid who apparently stayed inside watching TV so much that your neighbors didn't know <laughs> that your older brother had a younger brother. I know. It's, it, it was so tabloid worthy, right? Where is that child? <laughs> He's kept inside in, this, uh, in the basement rec room, yeah, apparently. Right. But you, you do you do an obit for the rural TV genre, genre you know, the sort of... Petticoat Junction and Hillbilly, uh, Beverly Hillbillies, for Lawrence Welk, and for the various methods for killing off sitcom stars, even when they weren't dead. The case in point is the two Darrens. So remind us of what the two Darrens are. Well, the case of the two Darrens is um, vexing for a whole generation. People who watched the TV show <laughs> Bewitched in the 1960s, starring the wonderful Elizabeth Montgomery as a witch who marries a mortal. The character is named Darren. Darren was originally played by a wonderful actor named Dick York. Um, Dick York had developed a dependency on painkillers after um, falling off a horse when he was uh, filming a Western. And... Um, it, Increasingly, he had he was in, in getting less and less airtime because he could handle it less. He had to be in a seated position. Eventually, he had to leave the show, and he was replaced by Dick Sargent to make matters more confusing. So another man named Dick. So what happened? Well, it turns out you never forget your first Darren because <laughs> the ratings plunged, and Dick Sargent just wasn't as good a Darren as Dick York. You talked about this with Lila Garrett, who was a writer on Bewitched for five seasons and after the Darrens were changed. Darren the first was in much more agony and anxiety than Darren the second. Just listen to how the new Darren says his wife's name. Samantha! Now listen to Darren Classic. Samantha! And Dick Sargent would have been more appropriately cast as the head of a detective agency. I mean, he's a good actor. There's nothing wrong with him. But he wasn't right for the part of Darren, and that hurt the show. Uh, so a different Dick made for a different Darren, and people did notice. Uh, what was interesting is I think many of us over a certain age grew up watching that show, and especially in reruns, the episodes would get scrambled. And, you know, they they just expected the audience to suspend disbelief. And I think the audience, to some extent, did. Um, the problem, I think, is just the actor wasn't as good. But I was interested in the choices that that TV show producers made in these situations, because 
you know, they could have had Elizabeth Montgomery's husband, the character of Darren, die, let's say. They weren't going to have them get divorced in the 1960s. Um, but they just changed the actor and people <laughs> went on. I mean, they did that with, with the character of Becky on Roseanne. They right. also had two different actresses play her in the first run of Roseanne. Um, but other in other cases, they just vaporize a character. They just have the character disappear, like in the TV show Happy Days. Um, for the first two seasons, Richie Cunningham, Ron Howard's character, had an older brother named Chuck who spent most of his time dribbling a basketball and eating a sandwich. Sometimes he did both at the same time, but that was pretty much it. Uh, and the Fonz at that time, Henry Winkler's character, was a more marginal character. He also didn't wear a black leather jacket because, believe it or not, when the show started, producers thought that might seem too menacing, too much like Marlon Brando and the wild one, I guess. But as the Fonz caught on, Gary Marshall, the creator of the show, said, you know what? Why would Richie go to anyone other than the Fonz for advice on dating and advice on how to be cool? So Gary Marshall said, we've just got to disappear. We've got to, I'm sorry, essentially Pinochet, that character, just like vaporize him. (laughs) And and, uh, that's it. So so, uh, Chuck Cunningham went up the stairs and never came down. Chuck Cunningham, rest in peace, wherever you may be. He's still up there in the attic, I guess. Maybe J.J. Abrams can find him. (laughs) You know, look, I like stories that on the surface seem like they're going to be fun and fizzy and are, but actually end up having more substance. Mm -hmm. I also happen to like stories that sometimes seem like they're going to be heavy, but I try to make them accessible. And this was obviously the former. I mean, who doesn't love talking about dead and disappeared sitcom characters? I know I do. Um, But I did think that there were interesting um, points to be made here creatively because the show was built on the tension between a mortal husband who didn't want his his wife who had – you know, witchy superpowers helping him out. He wanted to be the man of the house. Um, and that's what the show turned on. And that's what, what made it funny and compelling. And then suddenly you had a, a, a Darren, the second Dick, right? The second Darren at the center who just um, couldn't keep it up. Sorry, now that we're getting into trouble area. Okay, no, no, so, no. Yeah, but, <laughs> <laughs> but these are the little details and dimensions that we get in Mobits that I... I had no idea about. And I learned so much, including that Madame Chiang Kai-shek lived in Georgia. First of all, who is Madame Chiang Kai-shek? So Madame Chiang Kai-shek, um, a, a New York Times writer, Seth Faison, um, who covered the Far East for the New York Times, um, wrote an obit for Madame Chiang Kai-shek, who was the widow of Chiang Kai-shek, the Chinese nationalist leader who essentially lost out to Mao Zedong and the communist revolutionaries and sort of... Um, decamped to Taiwan um, after 1950. Um, She was his wife and she had grown up in Georgia actually um, as one of three sisters. And there's a Chinese ditty about them. I think it's sort of one loved power, one loved money, one loved China, something like that. I think she's the power one anyway. <laughs> and they were sort of the Gabor sisters before the Gabor sisters, but but they really meant business. Um, and she lived until she was, I believe, 105. And I remember when I read her obit in the early 2000s, and I thought, this is a long, thrilling obit, which doubles as kind of a primer on modern Chinese history. Um, and I bet the people reading this, uh, most of them, neither knew who she was or didn't realize she was still alive. So it's one of the – she had lived so long. But the length of her obit, 
made sense because she really was so important. Um, but I just loved, I loved this obituary. And I remembered a section where the writer Seth Faison wrote that during World War II, while she was barnstorming the country, um, raising money for, um, for the Chinese in their fight against the Japanese, that she had dinner at the White House and Eleanor Roosevelt, um, was, they were talking about striking coal miners or something at the table. And she said to Madame Chiang Kai-shek, how do they handle you know, dissidents in your country? And the writer described Madame Chiang Kai-shek just drawing a long fingernail across her own neck Ugh. and making a sound. So I could just hear... <laughs> And gasps from from <laughs> Eleanor Roosevelt and everyone else at the table. So she's not someone I particularly admire, but but boy, what a character. Oh, well, we've made a lot of them in this. My guest is Mo Rocca. He's correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning, host of the Mobituaries podcast, and now a book, Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving. And he's going to be at the Carter Center on Thursday, November 21st. There's a whole bit in the book about people who are commonly confused with each other, like Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone. Um, uh, let's see. Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan. This was my favorite. Gore Vidal and Vidal Sassoon. <laughs> right. Gore Vidal and v- Vidal Sassoon. One was a, a stylist of prose, the other a stylist of hair. And can I just point out that Vidal Sassoon once had a daytime show in the 1970s. And what? It was the, very the hair care time. guy? The hairdresser? Yes. And he had a daytime TV show. And I remember I came home from school one day. And it was the very first time I heard the word pizzazz. He was doing he, – he, he had some woman from the audience come up on stage and he said, we're going to give you some holiday pizzazz. And he put, I think, glitter in her hair, which is really hard to get out. Uh, but in any case um, – but I remember like I li- really like that word pizzazz. Um, Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone are forever confused. Davy Crockett is the Tennessee frontiersman. Daniel Boone is the um, – Kentucky pioneer. And I don't know the difference between a pioneer and a frontiersman, but they are different. Um, and, but only Davy Crockett wore a coonskin cap. Okay. The problem, the, the source of the confusion is that Fess Parker, actor Fess Parker, played both. And he didn't only play both, he played both in a coonskin cap. Okay, Daniel so that's Boone enough to confuse us. Totally. Daniel Boone did not have a coonskin cap. And if, if any of your listeners can prove that he did, then I stand corrected. <laughs> but I want to know that Vidal Sassoon doing giving pizzazz to people in the audience. Was this like one of the that must have been like a proto lifestyle improvement kind of show? I mean, was this a first? I think it probably was. Well, I think what I was watching was maybe an early makeover. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I think like unless you count Queen for a day, those old those old game shows. But I think this was probably an early one. And I should also add that Vidal Sassoon was on an episode of the Merv Griffin show with Billy Carter. Billy Carter. All roads lead to Billy Carter. You have an episode. The first episode of your second season of Mobituaries is about Billy Carter. Um, forgotten character in the minds of many, but maybe not here in Georgia. What did you find about Billy Carter in your exploration? I found a much more complicated person with a wonderful family. His widow, Sybil Carter, and the six children I spent time with in Plains, Georgia, and they are a wonderful family. And boy, did they love their father. Hmm. And their father was only 51 when he died, which means he was 39, Mm -hmm. not exactly boyish, but Mm -hmm. still 39 with six kids when Plains, Georgia became the center of the universe. And my goodness, I couldn't have handled it. 
Dan Rather, who I interviewed for the for that episode, um, Dan Rather profiled Billy in prime time. So it was no secret if you were willing to look and listen that Billy Carter was a big reader, mm-hmm. um, that he was beloved by the farmers that their business worked with in that area in southwest Georgia and that he was funny. Um, but what I had remembered as a kid growing up, and this is exactly the kind of topic I'm drawn to, is I remembered somebody – outrageous, um, doing kind of crazy stunts. Yeah, kind of the, um, the hillbilly guy, the hillbilly brother of the president. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, the, and by the way, talk about a colorful family and the Hall of Fame of presidencies. I mean, between Gloria, the motorcyclist, and Ruth, the faith healer, and then Jimmy, kind of the ramrod straight, you know, kind of naval officer, and then he got Billy. And I think I maybe was drawn to it because my own father was 13 years older than his younger brother and Billy Billy was 13 years younger than Jimmy and was was raised sort of alone very close to his father lost his father when he was 16 years old to pancreatic cancer and he had expected to take over this business and I mean we know it's not easy being the child of a president but for the siblings um, it's also complicated. Mm-hmm. There is a long history of what I call unruly presidential brothers. They go way back to John Quincy Adams's brother Charles, who their father, also president, called um, a madman possessed by the devil. Ulysses S. Grant's brother Orville got caught up in a kickback scheme. Roger Clinton, we know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Roger Clinton's Secret Service code name was Headache. I mean, it really was. I'm not kidding. That's what the Secret Service called him. Um, George W. Bush's brother, Neil, with the SNL um, scandal and losing a lot of taxpayer money. Uh, but Billy Carter dominated headlines in a way like other brothers hadn't. Um, but what I found was, first of all, the scandals, the problems he had are, are probably quaint by contemporary standards. Let's just say that. Mm-hmm. Um, he had his dalliance with the Libyans, um, which is sort of complicated And if people want to hear it. I think we made it actually quite um, digestible, go down easy, I hope, on the podcast. But um, but a, a sympathetic person who did struggle with alcohol uh, and then spent the later part of his life advocating on behalf of people, you know, on, on uh, alcoholics and, and um, speaking to groups of people struggling with that addiction. He and Sybil went around the country. Um, so the last chapter of his life was a really proud chapter. So I was drawn to this character because I want I, I wanted people in the book and the podcast, which are very different, um, I wanted people to think, oh, this is going to be kind of fun. It's Billy Carter and it's going to be all about his antics. And we, uh, we described them because we're describing the person, but also the substance of the man. And uh, um, yeah. Mo Rocca, correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning, panelist for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and host of the Mo Bituaries podcast. He adds author to his media empire. His new book is called Mo Bituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving. He'll be talking about the book at the Carter Center on Thursday, November 21st. And we're listening to the theme from the show Bewitched as we head into a short break. But stick around. We're going to return to this conversation with Mo and hear the story of a case of arbicide. That's right. Murdered trees. That's when On Second Thought returns. I'm Virginia Prescott.
We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott, continuing a conversation with Mo Rocca, correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning, panelist for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and host of the Mo Bituaries podcast, which is now in its second season. His new book expands on the stories from the podcast, and it's called Mo Bituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving. He'll be talking about the book at the Carter Center on Thursday, November 21st. We're going to jump right back into our conversation, and I would love to focus some of the time we have left on one particular story, the death of two living things that looms very large in this neck of the woods. Let's hear a piece of incriminating audio. The weekend after the Iron Bowl, I went to Auburn, Alabama, sure. and I poisoned the two tumors trees. Did they die? They're not dead yet, but they, they definitely will die. That is a call from Al from Davisville, if I've got that right, uh, to Paul Feinbaum's radio show. Who was he really? He ID'd himself as Al from Dadeville, um, and his real name is Harvey Updike, Harvey Updike Jr., which sounds like somebody who might do something really bad. Sorry, I'm not trying to lie, but we, you hear that name, and, and then you find out that he poisoned two beloved oak trees on the campus of Auburn University in Alabama. These two trees had stood for over 80 years. They were known as the Tumors Oaks, and they created sort of an archway on the campus, a living archway. The two trees were the heart and soul of that campus. Mm. And the Alabama, University of Alabama-Auburn football rivalry is – perhaps the fiercest in college football. We know a little bit about that. Okay. Oh, right. Of course you do. Of course. And listen, I'm a newbie to this whole SEC thing. Okay. <laughs> so he drove to Auburn's campus after an iron bowl and he poured spike ADDF, um, a, a very powerful pesticide, all around those trees, enough that some believe it nearly seeped into the water table. And so this is not – there's nothing funny about this. Uh, he eventually served time. He owes hundreds of thousands of dollars in restitution still. Um, And I found the whole crime sickening. Um, And I don't want to come off as one of those people that, you know, more bothered by the death of of a tree than a person. I'm not. But there was something so particularly sinister about what he did. Maybe it was the planning out of it. He, you know, he sort of drove around the trees at different times to find out when would be the optimum time to commit this crime. Well, here's a clip from the Mobit for these tumors oaks. On April 23rd, 2013, two and a half years after Harvey Updike had poisoned them, the tumors oaks were removed. It is so sad. And then every time the chainsaw cuts on, just listen to the people get quiet. So it's a sad day. It's uh, tough to talk about. To see this, it's like a funeral. So there's this huge emotional attachment to these trees. And as you said, it's not like, you know, somebody you know being poisoned or, or being tortured or something, but still really impactful. So where did that take you? I wanted to meet him. I wanted to see if if – I wanted to see basically where the line between fan and fanatic exists. Mm. I mean, because – Ardent sports fans, crazed sports fans, I'm going to call them ardent, crazed sports fans can seem crazy and sometimes are crazy. Um, and after spending time with him, I I still couldn't tell if he was sorry, but I could see 
that he was a loving grandfather to his granddaughters and that the granddaughters are terrific kids. They lived for their, with their grandfather for a time, no longer. Uh, I mean, this, this might, might seem trite, but people who are exemplary in some parts of their lives can indeed do crazy things in others. Well, that's an interesting thing about this episode in particular, that we do get to hear you actually ask. You go to, I think he's living in Louisiana now. You go and ask him about whether or not he has remorse. Let's hear just a quick clip of that. If you could say anything to those trees, what would you say to them? (sighs) I'd probably say, uh, sorry, but... Too late now. It was interesting to listen to you, I think, Mo, go through your feelings about Harvey, thinking who would do such a thing, and then meeting him in person and suspending judgment to understand him better. I think there's a bigger lesson or idea there. What did you experience in that process? Well, I, you know, there were times in, in during the time I spent with him where I liked him and I felt bad when he talked about being a little boy and his father dying. Um, His father was a truck driver uh, and uh, being raised by his mother in the panhandle of Florida and watching the Bear Bryant show, which was like a second church for Alabamans. It was um, a TV show where the great legendary Alabama football coach Bear Bryant would dissect the game, the the day's game from before, um, and his he told me about while his mother would iron, he would just be watching, and Bear Bryant became this father figure for him. So maybe I'm just a sucker for that kind of a thing, mm-hmm. but I did feel badly for him. But then at other times, then I thought, well, wait a minute, you know, there, the law and order matters, and so the the current DA in Alabama um, um, is. Far less sympathetic, and I understand his point of view too, um, that just because of Harvey's painful past uh, and his difficult personal life, that obviously is no justification for what he went and did on that campus. Um, But so I I guess I, I went back and forth. I certainly never thought it was okay what he did. I never thought it was okay. But his daughter-in-law did say to me at one point, you know, we get death threats because he lives with us. At the time we taped this episode, um, they were living together. Uh, And she made the point. She she sort of said in a pretty persuasive way, look, these are trees. He's gone to prison. And what else do people want? So anyway, there you go. And it's it's very difficult, right, in the universe of, of wrongs and injustice where to place where to place this. It's definitely not a good thing. Right. But you reach, I think, a degree of compassion. And and I think what this story for me and many of the other mobituaries that you do, there's a complexity of human behavior. And wondering if others come to mind as depicted as villains or some other flat, one-dimensional character. But you came away with another take. I can think of a couple. I think in the case of Chang and Ang Bunker, mm-hmm. the conjoined twins, their story at the beginning is a thrilling story of and painful of two brothers who are brought to this country early in the 19th century and win their freedom because they're essentially indentured servants bought by promoters, showbiz promoters, who then find wives, women to marry, 
they happen to be sisters, settle in North Carolina, are farmers, have children, and then they own slaves. Mm -hmm. So you, you're with them all the way until this moment. And then it's like you hit a brick wall and you go, oh, I almost loved you completely. However, that's part of their story. And, it, and it, it's certainly a rich story. And I don't think it's something to run away from. I think it's something to explore. It makes them very, very complicated. It doesn't make this what I'd call sort of a slam dunk of a story of, you know, these guys who overcame adversity and and cheers to them. Um, but sort of, in my opinion, they're all of America the, packed into one story. I mean, it's a story about immigration. It's a story about showbiz, which is a big part of America. It's mm -hmm. a story about pulling yourself up from your bootstraps. It's a story about family. And then it's a story about this very dark thing. It's a story about slavery um, and the Civil War. Um, they are sort of all of America, the very good, the bad, and the ugly. And, and such, uh, a, such a metaphor that they are, you know, two parts, two distinct humans co-joined at the waist as well. Yeah, that's that's right. And in fact, they, they were often used by Herman Melville and by Mark Twain as a literary metaphor. Um, I also th – this is not someone who had a bad reputation, but Marlena Dietrich. Mm -hmm. I mean everybody remembers her as a great screen siren and um, and she was, but she was also a great American patriot. And she is in a section of the book called Celebrities Who Put Their Butts on the Line because lots of celebrities have causes. But famous people like Elizabeth Taylor and Marlena Dietrich actually put themselves out there. Marlena Dietrich – renounced her citizenship, her German citizenship. She was German before World War II began. Hitler had been wooing her. He sent, uh, I think, his foreign minister to see her in Paris um, with a medal that would have essentially made her queen of Germany to lure her back. <laughs> she resisted that. She renounced her citizen citizenship, which could not have been easy for someone who was German to the core. And then uh, Billy Wilder, the great film director, said she spent more time at the front than, than General Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander. And I think that may be true. Obviously, Eisenhower was a great Supreme Allied Commander. Um, but Marlena Dietrich with a then young Danny Thomas, who was her opening act, um, put herself at very real risk. Um, I think wanted to be performing in enemy territory um, for American troops and uh, was relentless in her support of American troops fighting her – the homeland of her birth. Um, so she is a great patriot and deserves to be remembered as that. Mo Rock is my guest, correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning, host of the Mobituaries podcast and author of the book, Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving. You know, you're an Emmy, you were an Emmy-winning TV writer on top of all of the in-front-of-the-camera stuff you do. Did you ever aspire, Mo, to be an obituary writer? I don't think I've ever aspired to be – and well, I'll tell you, for CBS Sunday Morning – I profile a lot of people mm -hmm. and and an obituary is essentially a profile of somebody. It is – and many great obit writers have said this. It's about the life of, of a person. It's not really about their death. Um, so I suppose that's what I've been doing. I mean I know that I'm I'm always interested in people's beginnings, probably more than their end, the roots where they came from. 
Um, so, yeah, so I kind of feel like I've become an obituary writer with this. We have a, a, a kind of legendary local obituary writer, Kay Are Powell. Are you talking about Kay Powell? Yes, of course. Kay Powell is amazing. The doyen of the death beat. That's what they call And Kay Powell is the one that taught me that when you read an obituary or a paid death notice, and they are two different things, mm-hmm. but when you read that, she taught me how to decode some of the language. So if someone is described as a raconteur, that means he was really, really boring. <laughs> he just couldn't stop talking. If someone is described as vivacious, he was a drunk. That's her word. Okay, and so he was he was raucous, and um, well, you you, I, you clearly learn from one of the best. I mean, that's that's oh, what we think. She is amazing. Why isn't Kay Powell starring in a sitcom with me? I mean, we'll sell it based on her, and I'll be I'll play her stringer. I'll play her. I'll play her assistant. She is fantastic. Well, you know, but she said that a lot of people assume that because she writes obituaries, that she has some kind of channel to the dead, or there's something. Creepy about her. I mean, do you do you ever get asked that? I mean, what what is that association about? Please trust me. K. Powell is the farthest thing from dead. That lady's alive. <laughs> I mean, she is a live wire. Um, do I? No, I don't think anyone thinks of me as lugubrious. And and really, I mean, the cover of the book has me in front of a tombstone, but that's sort of as morbid as it gets. I mean, I look. I'm, I mean, I will say this. I do. I, I, one of the great things about this project is that, frankly, dead people are just a lot easier to deal with than live people. <laughs> I mean, for one thing, they don't have publicists, and his publicists, with all due respect, are nightmares. So I guess that wasn't very respectful. But I just dead people. It's just it's just easier to deal with. Well, you end the book with a mobit of sorts for your own dad, Marcel mm-hmm. Jack Rocca. So was it different writing about the life of somebody so close to you compared with all of these others? I, you know, it was both easier and harder. It all, it, it, it. I thought for a while, and I was almost maybe a. Was I a little afraid to start? Maybe I was afraid that I couldn't do him justice. And then it just all came out. And with a wonderful editor who encouraged me and supported me, I'm, I'm happy with how it came out. I mean. My father was somebody who used words like marvelous and delightful a lot, and. I would hope that he would be delighted by this book. Mm. And pretty much in everything I do, and I know somebody would say, like, maybe you need to go see a shrink, but too bad. I'm not, I mean, well, I, might, I have to see a shrink for other reasons, but I want the things that I do to delight him because he, because I'm so lucky that he shaped me. And, um, and I have, and my mo- wonderful mother is still with me and, um, and lives very close by, which is, which I'm very fortunate for. But, uh, um yeah I I uh, I I found after the book was almost put to bed before I wrote um an appreciation of him that he runs through so much of it so many of the different things I'm interested in I'm interested in because of him I had older parents growing up and I was always grateful for that he that was you know he was born in 1929 so all my friends' parents were boomers, most of them, and my father loved the Glenn Miller Band, and he played Dixieland trumpet. And maybe there was a time that I felt like an outlier because of that, but then I came to really appreciate that. And um, yeah, and and also, I mean, my father adored me completely, and it is what 
empowers me, I think, having parents who love you unconditionally. I know people that don't have that. And I know what a struggle that is and how it trips you up. And so uh, I am very fortunate that that I had parents that adored me and, and maybe and maybe thought everything I did was a little too marvelous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a marvelous time talking with you, Mo Rocket. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you, Virginia. Mo Rocca, correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning, panelist for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and host of the Mobituaries podcast, now in its second season, and author of Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving. He's going to be talking about the new book at the Carter Center on Thursday, November 21st. And in honor of Mo Rocca's father, who loved jazz, we're going to leave you with Louis Armstrong's When the Saints Go Marching In. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Raven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Jessica Lowell and Alexis Thomason. Don Smith is our official dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Mary Lynn Ryan is executive producer. And I'm Virginia Prescott, hoping to live a life worthy of a Mobituaries podcast. This is On Second Thought. Now when the saints go marching in, now when the saints go marching in,